you know, we were all into like the same stuff. And I was telling him, you know what? I want to get a piece of property like this and build like a medieval castle on it. And I want to have like cave with a dragon in it. And I want to have tunnels underneath that people can go through so that like you could have people like show up in different places. You know, I was like thinking through all the logistics of like, how do you create like the perfect place for LARP? It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and welcome to episode five of our subculture series. Here, we'll deviate from the mainstream and explore communities that you might not have heard of. Some you might think are just weird and out there, but I think you'll quickly find that these groups will challenge you to shed your preconceived notions and tap into your ingenuity, creativity, and vulnerability. In fact, if you let these experiences in, you might just be able to change your life for the better. In this episode, we explore the vibrant and engaging community of live action roleplay, something that you might remember from the previous episode. And at the top of the episode, you were just listening to David Pulsifer, president of the LARP City Project. David's dream began with a pretty simple idea, but maybe a bit far-fetched. He wanted to build a medieval castle that he could host the perfect LARP event. And while I admit it does sound like something out of a fairy tale, medieval castle and all, it actually would come to pass in one form or another. And David would find his footing in the LARP business. In the meantime, however, he found himself working jobs that had nothing to do with LARP at all. But we'll get to that later. Before all of this, I want to go back in time a little bit to David's first gaming memory on a grassy farmland hillside. Actually, I got into LARP before I was able to actually play D&D. It was with uh, some friends of mine. I lived out in like a dairy farm and we had like nothing to do, right? So Wait, a dairy farm? Yeah, I lived out in like an area with just dairy farms everywhere. Did you did your parents like have a dairy farm or No, we were the only people that didn't have a dairy farm in dairy country. We had like a little two thirds of an acre plot. So what were your parents doing? Uh, my dad was a roofer and a trucker and my mom worked for the state in the water resources department. So I guess being surrounded by all that farmland, you might, I imagine you have to start creating imagination just to survive the boredom. Right. So, so like, what, what did you start doing? So the first LARP that we ever came up with, like me and my friend just loved playing pretend, right? We loved the video game Mario Kart on the Super Nintendo. And so we made our own version with bikes where we actually like found pieces of plywood and painted big question marks and stuck them on the ground and rode our bikes around. And then we pretended like if we hit like a little thing, then we would pedal faster somehow, like, you know. 
and we had a whole little rule system connected to it. And that's just like intense creativity. Yeah. That point, I guess you could give the definition of LARPing, but like that's just overachieving in imagination almost, right? Like you're creating these uh, scenarios, maybe inspired by Mario Kart, but you're like adding all these layers to them. Was it just you and your friend or did other people join in or what did, uh, what did people think of that Mario Kart game? <laughs> so this was just me and my brother and my friends, uh, right? So that was kind of our f- first foray into kind of a LARP-like activity. The the first, I think, what you would call official game that I ever played was uh, we called it Mega Powers. And it was also obviously created by like eight and nine year olds. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it started off with drawing your character and the more abdominal muscles you could draw, the stronger they were, you know, kind of thing. So we had like 24 pack (laughs) guys with seven biceps and, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh uh, we, you know, we created like the old like uh, superhero style cards where you list all their stats and their abilities and things like that. And you could call it advanced pretend. We basically pretended like we were X-Men characters and uh, we would run around and pretend to fight bad guys. And we would, you know, we didn't have uh, a lot of the what are called boffers at the time, you know, which like like foam weapons. So we were just carefully hitting each other with actual sticks With actual sticks or not, David and his friends were doing something that is essential for any child's development. When kids play pretend, they're actually developing social and emotional skills. As David and his friends created their own characters or pretended to be X-Men, they were literally walking in someone else's shoes or pretending to, which is what creates empathy and understanding in people. They were imagining real-life scenarios and seeing the world through a different lens. The imaginary world of Mario Kart presented David with new possibilities, different rules and goals to achieve. And as it is for most kids, gaming was just fun. It was an enjoyable way to spend time with friends and just pastime in general. But even though David's love for gaming started with Mario Kart, there were also some other things that kept drawing him in. That thing he called advanced pretend. I mean, a lot of kids obviously drawn to play. But you're, it's not just play, it's like creating a world with rules and probably like a lot of kids wouldn't do or wouldn't have the patience to do. Yet like you're drawn to the specific kind of play, like why? I think it was probably just kind of a unique fusion of the kind of kids that I was hanging out with at the time. Almost all of us ended up getting into Renfair and nerdy stuff later on, but... Um, what would you classify like your friend group as? We were definitely not in any of the cliques or except for like, you know, we were definitely in the like the nerdy clique. Not necessarily everyone was into math and science, but we were all into video games because at the time this was like in the 80s. So at the time, like computer games were really kind of becoming their own. It was just it was really kind of a new thing. There was the boom in the 70s and they almost kind of died out. And then when we were kids in the 80s, now it's like. Uh, they're kind of coming back again and we were all like really into it. So like, I'm I'm just thinking about like my middle school experience, right? I was super into making little videos with my friends and web comics. And I was mercilessly like bullied for it. And I just remember like going to school and not being able to share that part of my identity because it would be like beaten out of me. But I mean, there are some places where it's accepted. Where do you think your community fell into in the realm of 
acceptance and not acceptance. Yeah, I definitely think that, that matches my experience as well. There was a lot of stuff that we liked that, you know, we couldn't just do at school. Why couldn't you do it at school? <clears throat> well, because you get made fun for fun of for it. If you run around trying to pretend to be like a X-Men character or whatever out in the playground, yeah, you're going to get made fun of or beat up or whatever. So, yeah, that's why a lot of what we did was out in the fields in the middle of nowhere where no one was around to watch us because we could do whatever we wanted out there. Did you have to learn that the hard way? Uh, yeah, actually. There was a time, I think the first point that I learned that I couldn't just be myself at school was in fifth grade. It was actually shortly after we moved. Basically what happened was the way I grew up, everyone was kind of very physically affectionate. Like we would hug and things like that a lot, you know, and that was like common amongst all the, the, the kids where I grew up before I moved to this area. And the first time I went to give another boy a hug out of friendship, I got torn apart by it. Like as, oh, you're gay or what, you know, like lots of slurs in that line. And so it was really like devastating because it was like, to me, this was like something that you did normally with everyone. And then, and so that's the kind of my first discovery, like, oh, you can't just be yourself around people. So do you have to change how you presented yourself? Um, I think I just kind of withdrew from the other, you know, other kids. Uh, it was actually really a sharp change, I think, in my personality because I never thought of myself as nerdy or smart or anything like that. And then suddenly I, the teachers are telling me that I'm smarter than everyone. And so they're going to put me in this advanced math and science class. And none of the kids are interested in anything that I'm interested in. And so, yeah, so it was just, you know, I found those few people that, uh, I did click with and kind of just stuck around them as much as I could. Yeah, but I imagine initially that was like incredibly isolating. Yeah, it was definitely a weird experience to like suddenly not be friends with everybody at school and to have some people who like for no explainable reason actively disliked you. David seemed to realize pretty quickly that he didn't fit into the typical click. His experience with that hug it kind of showed him how merciless kids could be. For whatever reason, the kids at David's new school didn't know what to make of something like that. Anywhere else, maybe that would be normal, maybe not. But the point is, these guys didn't understand that it was okay or understandable for a guy to hug other guys or enjoy gaming or role-playing in the way David did. And that sense of not knowing, that can stoke insecurity. It's the fear of the unknown that fuels a lot of hate that we all know as bullying. But instead of giving in and trying to force himself into the norm, David held on to what he loved. He didn't change his interest for other people. Instead, he surrounded himself with friends that supported what he was into. And he'd soon discover something else that would lead him in the right direction. So probably the point where it really started getting into more complex games would be some point in junior high. It's really funny that I had always wanted, I'd heard of D&D and I've always, I'd always wanted to play it, but never just, you know, never really found people that were also kind of expressing interest in it. Eventually a friend of mine, I uh, found out like his dad had a bunch of old D&D books. His dad was like an old college nerd right really and like i had no idea that my friend had this 
a treasure, tra- treasure trove, trove yeah, of, of like material. <laughs> like, how come you haven't told me this? <laughs> what secrets are you hiding? <laughs> yes. You know, so, uh, and that kind of started my foray into, you know, playing tabletop games right. in D&D. I'm going to come out of hiding. I'm going to fire an arrow yeah, with advantage. Yeah. Lost my standing. That was a natural 20. Yeah, the, 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 I mean, the real true story is that we just kind of did, honestly, we did a lot of video games, we did a lot of art, and then it was finally when I found out my friend had been hiding this trove of D&D books that we started sitting down actually, like, playing things. So uh, how did you start playing? So honestly, I like I had to kind of read the books and figure it out because like none of them knew how to play and like, you know, it was complicated. So at this moment, you're figuring out the game for people who don't know what D&D is. What is the game? So Dungeons and Dragons is pretend with dice. And then you have a dungeon master or some kind of game runner person who sets up a story and a scenario. You're kind of relying on one of your friends to not play the game and to run the game for everyone else. Your characters go through adventures and they get more powerful and gain magic items and you, you know, run around and defeat evil wizards and that kind of thing. You're essentially improving a story on the fly and then recording a history of that to like yes. look back on and iterate upon. And these games, like also, they're not necessarily just one night. Like you can have games that run for decades. And so as you develop the world, what was most interesting to you about playing this kind of game? Like why did you continually come back to it? It set the stage for me at that time wanting to not, you know, maybe not necessarily so much of the self-improvement, but I want to create a better world, right? You know, and that's a big theme in these games as well. You're saving the world, you're fixing something in the world and things like that. And so I think that inspired me in that way where I was like, you know what? I want to do things that, you know, I want to do things that get us out of the status quo, that make things better and improve the experience. Things don't have to be the way they are now forever. So as you went towards college, how did you marinate on those ideas? So from the D&D, you got more involved in like the reenactment communities. And is it SCA? Yeah. So Society for Creative Anachronism. And I first got introduced to that in high school. And so I was, you know, playing D&D and doing all this other kind of stuff. And I was hanging out with all the people that also did that kind of stuff. And then I found out that they went and did these. I thought they were Renaissance fairs, but it turns out the SCA is very different than a Renaissance fair. So I was like, you got to take me. I got to go. And I was like 16. And so they're like, well, I don't know if we can bring you. And my parents were like, absolutely no way. I guess I just wore them down eventually that I, that I just, you know, that they finally said, okay, and let me go. And, uh, yeah, it was me and, uh, my other friend, David, and we went to, uh, to the, the SCA event. Okay. So I want to hear about the type of person that is at this event. What kind of person was there and what did you notice that like you had in common? Maybe like, like some of the things that you, you didn't have in common with these people. So the people that I'm going with are, I think the common thing between them is that they all don't feel like they belong in this time or like they have some kind of disconnect, disassociation with it, right? Some kind of like, I'd rather not 
be here because, you know, the people or the, you know, the society just isn't the kind of society that I want to live in. And so and then I think there's a lot of romanticization of the medieval period. It's like the golden era. Because you've got adventure and romance and excitement. So a lot of it is also a celebration of that, the science and the art that was flourishing around that time in, in Europe. How are you noticing that they're embodying this time period and like this this love of a bygone era? I think the biggest way that people embody it at these kind of events is taking on the customs or at least what we think of the customs were at that time, which is a lot of the like politeness that people say is missing from the modern era that supposedly existed at this time. You know, so it's like a lot of, you know, how you greet people. So, you know, you're not just like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) It's um, good morrow. And you say it in a certain way, like even if you're not, good morning, even if you're not using an accent, but there's a level of, uh, I don't know, emotion or presentation to it that you don't give in, in every day when you're dealing with people in an everyday environment. You know, you're really like, you're really greeting that person. You're really saying, hello, I see you, you're there and I'm here and I appreciate your presence, but you're putting all of that in good morrow. That's so interesting. So that's what you're noticing about these people around you. So like, how quickly are you just sucked in by this? I loved it immediately. (laughs) Love at first sight. Yeah, that was fantastic. I loved all the people that I met there and it was just a really amazing time. Could you tell me just uh, some of the things that you would see? So the first thing that you're going to see is a lot of colorful canvas tents. You know, heraldry was big, big back in the medieval ages. And so they really run with that in in these kind of events. You see tents, you see like really ornate beds, but that are designed to be packed up so that they're like collapsible. But when you set them up, they look like medieval beds and, you know, medieval chairs. And then, you know, there's a tournament ground with like colored, you know, fabric uh, ribbons on the on the ropes lining it and uh, and then you're seeing people in you know costumes and you're seeing people running around in like full plate mail armor and they're not using real swords on the combat field they use like these sort of wooden swords called rattan but you know they're actually like hitting like as hard as they can whacking and, and things like that and you can hear it like wherever you are you can hear the whack 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 but you know more metallic sounding of of people like actually like fighting each other and like there's actually some skill that is, is behind some of these fighters. People not only embody the aesthetics, but they embody the skill too in all of these areas. So between 2000 and uh, 2013, how do these interests develop? I, I, I want to understand how the love of this world turns to kind of a vocation. Actually, I think I can identify a really defining moment on that. It was 2004 and uh, out where I lived at the time, which this is up near Sacramento, Northern California, there was a nature preserve out there and it was just the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. You know, me and some of my friends, we'd go there every year and, you know, like they had like all kinds of just different kinds of environments there. So you had like a forest, I called it the Elven Forest because there was just all these tall oak trees and you had these one like, amazing paths. I love paths that go through trees going over you. And they just had that all over the place and they had like the savanna, and then they had like the river area and they had like this weird little bridge that no one knew why it was there, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like actually meant to be like a car bridge or a footbridge. It was like, I, I believe it was 
was for like propane pipe or some kind of gas pipe that was that went across the river but you could climb up onto it and walk across this thing and you were going over this rushing river anyways there were like all these amazing places to hang out and kind of like imagine you were in another world and uh, so I was walking through there uh, with a friend of mine named Stuart uh, who I went to you know junior high and high school with and you know we were all into like the same stuff and I was telling him, you know what I want to get a piece of property like this and build like a medieval castle on it and I want to have like a cave with a dragon in it. And I want to have like tunnels underneath that people can go through so that like you could have people like show up in different places. You know, I was like thinking through all the logistics of like, how do you create the perfect place for LARP? Uh, at that point, did you think it was just something fanciful that was just an idea or were you serious? At the time, I was like... I don't think I can do this now, but I want to become the person who could do that. Really, at that moment. Why was that moment the moment that you decided that? Because I understand being inspired by this forest, but like, why did you think you even could? At that time, I think what was going through my head was that I'm going to be going to college. I'm going to learn how to like run a business and make a business. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. Right. And I want to, you know, do that. And so then the first thing I want to do when I start making, you know, my first million or whatever, right, is I want to build this. And so what made me think that it would eventually be possible is that I decided I want to, you know, focus and go down that entrepreneur route and not do the nine to five job thing and, you know, and make the money to make these other dreams come true. With such a unique dream, David knew he would be taking an unconventional path to make it a reality. Even with a degree, the average income for the working person is only $66,000. So building a castle on a 9 to 5 was not going to happen anytime soon unless he had some royal decree from a parent in Scotland that left him millions of dollars. But the castle had become his ultimate goal. And as he climbed up onto that gas pipe, looking out across the property, his imagination brimmed with possibility. But to get there, to get to this dream, David knew he needed to create a foundation. He needed to acquire skills that would create a pathway towards success. But getting your footing on that pathway can be hard. And usually the first step is finding that first job. And even that can be pretty difficult. You had this dream. You wanted to be an entrepreneur. When you went to college, how did the, those dreams mature? And, and, and that idea of like entrepreneurship to create the world that I want to live in, the world that I want to embody, like how did that develop further? I think most of my college time was kind of spent really kind of figuring out how did I want to pursue this dream? I, I went into it and I think I went into it with a fair amount of youthful naivety that I was just going to take some colleges on how to run a business and then figure out a business to run and start it. And then it would, everything would work out and it'd be great, you know? And that's, you know, that's why it was between 2004 and 2013 <laughs> before I actually ended up, you know, kind of making any motion on this project. But the, uh, the seed was planted. Yeah, the seed was planted. You know, I hit head first with, you know, the reality of what it is to become an adult. And my parents, they definitely did their best to, to support 
my dreams, but a lot of my dreams were kind of expensive. So at some point they had to say, I'm sorry, we can't, you know, this isn't something that we can afford to fund. And so it became the reality of like, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to make the money so that I can go make the money. Um, you know, and so that's when I, you know, so I started my first job at Subway. I, you know, I definitely, I hit this phase of like feeling like I really want to get out on my own. I don't want to live with my parents anymore. I got to like spread those wings and be independent. So then it was, you know, I definitely think it was a time period where I probably got pulled off mission a little bit where I was just more focused on just becoming an independent adult than pursuing this dream and kind of running into uh, the things that you run into when you find out that, yeah, you have to start at the bottom and you have to kind of like get jobs that you don't like. hard to pursue that dream when you're thinking about survival well, because you want to be independent now you have to think about your own survival how did the adult world not beat you down to the point where you're like this is dumb like i can't do this and also what beat hope out of you like what what can you tell me about one of those shitty jobs that that i guess like it made you closest to giving up so i think the job that probably brought me the close to that was actually my first job subway so, you know, I was, I, I worked there for, and I think probably like a couple years and, you know, I was like a shift leader and all this kind of thing. And it was just one day. It was actually the day that my boss gave me a raise that I was like, this is not going to be possible because the raise after working there for as long as I had and demonstrating that, you know, the level of responsibility of like managing things and bringing in all the, you know, like he was even saying, yeah, you, you know, the, the shifts that you're on bring in way more income than the other managers. So I'm giving you this raise and the raise he gave me was 10 cents an hour. I went from 835 an hour to 845 an hour. That's just a punch in the gut. And then I found out that I was making 35 cents an hour less than the store managers. So if you climb the ladder, what it's only 35 cents to the next rung. That's ridiculous. So how did you process that information? So I was like, I got to get out of here. This episode is brought to you by Carvana. Carvana is in the business of driving you happy. They put you in control of financing your car with payment plans that fit your plans. And their simple tools help you customize your down payment and monthly payments so you can instantly see a variety of cars that fit your budget. No surprises, no hidden fees. So to buy a car that makes you happy, visit Carvana.com or download the app. The first thing I did is I walked next door to the Papa John's where you could get at least get tips as a delivery driver and put in an application, right? So I was like, okay, well, this is at least a step up because now I'm not limited by this hourly rate. If I do a really good job and make people like me, they'll give me more money for just bringing them pizza. So that was my thought process. And it's almost like a little bit more ownership over your fate. Like it's not quite complete entrepreneurial ownership, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I had been like really kind of fishing around in like the computer science area and doing computer programming. And I was like, I started looking and I said, that's just going to be another hourly situation. We're like, yeah, you're, I might be making 20 or $40 an hour, but I'm still having to sit there for 40 to 60 hours a week making a set amount of money. Doing something you're probably not super interested in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure I would have been interested in it. Like, cause you know, like computer programming was something that I enjoyed, but that wasn't like the end goal. Yeah. Right. The end goal was to build a castle in the woods. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I was like, okay, well, 
I don't I don't know if I want to pursue this path anymore. Like I really like this stuff. I like learning it. And I, you know, and I was taking like classes on like stock investing and finance and stuff at community college. I was just taking anything, anything of this nature that I could find. And I was like, but if I don't ever get like the seed money to invest in the stock market, I'm not going to make a bunch of money from the stock market. Like that doesn't matter how much, you know, financial genius you apply to a hundred dollars. You can't turn <laughs> that into, you know, I mean, there's some people who have, you know, you hear these stories of people who started with a hundred dollars and built a big painting business or whatever. Right. You know, I, I guess that wasn't within my personal reality at the time. So I was like, I need to figure out another way. So my solution was to go to massage therapy school. Okay, what was that like? Uh, I mean, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, well, so then I'll become a massage therapist. Then I start my own business. Yeah, and, okay, I, I, I see the vision. I see the vision. You know, and, uh, and I do that. And so I went to Western Career College. Okay, so you went to the massage therapy school. So I did the massage therapy certification program at Western Career College. My parents were like, we've already spent all this money for you to do these courses to become a computer guy at Sacramento City College. We're not going to pay for you to go to massage therapy school because we think that's a dead end and computers are a big yeah, thing yeah. and you're going to make more money from that. Which, so you know, I, as a parent, I can imagine that that's good advice. I, I don't fault them, right? I. I think that they made the right decision, but not in the sense that it then convinced me to stay in school to do computer science, but it was that another push for me to go, well, fine, I'll just figure out how to do this on my own. And that's when I found out that banks will give you tons of money for school, even though you have no credit history, <laughs> so that they can have you in debt for the rest of your Student life. Loans. Wow, what a discovery. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought... I thought this was amazing. Like, oh, yeah, I can get approved for like a $40,000 loan at, you know, 22 years old and having Sick one credit card. Free money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got some free money. Big air quotes on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so then I did the massage therapy program, uh, went all the way through, got my certification, and found out I really didn't like giving strangers massages. <laughs> but you got to decide your own hours a little bit more? But, yeah. Well, I never went into that as business. Like, I never, like, pursued that. I was continuing uh, to work at Papa John's this entire uh, time. Just to be clear, <laughs> you spend to go to student loan for $40,000 to go to massage therapy school, and you never gave a massage. I never made a single dime from doing giving massages in my life. Okay, so you don't use it. Well, how do you, where where do you go from there? So um, at that point, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to school in LA. For what? Uh, I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, I just knew that I was gonna, you know, moving to LA and getting somewhere else out of Elk Grove, you know, where th more things are happening, was gonna solve the problem. Uh, so I, I went to L.A. and um, that's when I got a job at the vitamin company that I now own. Why was that interesting to you? So the reason why I got into it was, I guess, the equivalent of ne not really nepotism is that I started uh, dating someone and uh, her and her father owned the business. And I was like, hey, I need a job. Do you have any openings? And she was like, uh, sure. And so I started running the auto ship program for that company. Right. So auto ship as in like online sales. 
Yeah, like, yeah, based like monthly automated sales of vitamins that go out to people. Taking ownership of the company wasn't something that would happen overnight. I mean, he was just at massage school and that switch to the massage school was a bold and risky move, especially in taking on significant debt to pursue it. And then he had to go through all that money and work, just realize it wasn't his niche. And that must have been a tough realization. But then to have the epiphany to move to Los Angeles and then get this job at this vitamin company, like it, it's all confusing and it's happening very fast. And I'm sure he knew, okay, like I need to stay somewhere at some point and get some experience. And I guess this vitamin company is the place where he felt like he could get into a position of leadership and maybe finally prove his entrepreneurial skills and expand the company in the process. Okay, so I guess let's lead up to 2013, like biggest success stories of running this business. So I in, I like 10x to the auto ship program and was just screaming straight up vertical in numbers of people because I just was taking ownership over getting people on it. And, you know, so I started like diving into other people's areas and optimizing them to get more people into auto ship and kind of developing like, okay, how do we prevent people from canceling and you know, all this kind of stuff, just developing all this methodology to just keep pushing it up. And so how, much, how much money were, what was this company making? Um, there, so when I first came in, they were making about $30,000 a week and we got it up to about $80,000 a week in 2014. It's, you know, it's not like, you know, Amazon level or no, you know, but like, that's but, serious income. And like, it's a small business. So uh, how many people are, were working there? When I started there, we were we had like four staff. And then in 2014, when I took it over, we were up to like 20. Wow. Okay. So expanding massively. And on the road to that, in 2013, you decide to embark on a new project. So finally, after all that time, now I got to the point where I was actually putting money into savings for myself. You know, I now had money that I was starting to invest in things and exploring all these new avenues. And so that's when it kind of dawned on me, wow, I've got money for this. Now I've got money for the castle. What form did this idea take? Like, I imagine it just wasn't called like big castle in the woods. Like, what was the plan? I was originally calling it like LARP Village Project or something. And I was like, no, this is going to be a city. This is bigger than that. So that I decided on LARP City Project. And the idea is that we were just going to somewhere find land that no one wanted in California somehow, I guess, and buy it and put a medieval city on it and start running LARPs there. Why did you want to create it? I just wanted a place where I could build something that was not just boring condos or commercial property, but something that where people could have experiences, something where you could have experiences that you can't get anywhere else. I think the first step was we set up, I've set up a Facebook page to advertise it, you know, all the boring stuff of registering a business. And then I started reaching out to the local LARP community. I hadn't done this entire time. I hadn't done any local LARP. Um, so I was now just stepping into the local LARP community when I uh, started this project and and I just started asking questions like what would you want? What do you want in a in a in a medieval city? So what did they want? There was a surprising level of disagreement and then also a surprising level of agreement on certain things. A lot of agreement on that it needed showers. <laughs> My goal at the time was 
actually more close to trying to find fellow collaborators who wanted to be involved in making this happen. Uh, and I think what I ended up discovering that was a surprise to me is that there was actually a lot of apathy in the LARP community about this topic. The topic of like buying your own property and building like a, a LARP park on it. Because apparently everyone in LARP has this idea and says they're going to do this thing and then never moves forward through it. There was a lot of like, you know, younger LARPers who were like, yes, this is a great idea and enthusiastic and I want to be a part of this. And then there was a lot of like older LARPers that are like, yeah, I've seen this a million times. I definitely wish you the best of luck, but I never see it go anywhere. So I don't want to get personally invested in it. Is that demoralizing? So I definitely took kind of like a, a hit there finding out that like a lot of people had tried to do this before. And so it was it was a lot of internal work to get over the fact that like this, I wasn't like the first person to come up with this idea, you know, and I think that every entrepreneur encounters that to some degree when they find out like, oh, yeah, lots of people have maybe come up with this idea before or something like it. But are you going to be the first person to have the the endurance to see it through and make it happen? And so I think that's where I kind of settled on it was like, yeah, a lot of people have tried this before and maybe a lot of people are jaded and maybe it's not financially viable. But I think if anyone has the endurance to actually see it through, that might be me. You have this inspiration from this East Coast LARPing community. How do you start to like, I guess, do phase one of this operation? So, yeah, the, the vitamin business started taking off and it really hit its peak around uh, 2014, 2015. Because of the success that we were seeing there, then uh, I took over ownership of the business at that point. Like, how much are you bringing in now? We sell about two million in vitamins a year. Jeez. That's when the, the ability to have the money to pursue this dream then became a reality. I think it's incredible that you went from what, a 30 cents raise to now owning basically your own business. I think that the strategy that I've taken has been more like a little bit more on the conservative side. So a little bit more of the, okay, instead of like, let's go find a piece of property and figure out how to get a loan to buy it and then try to build this thing. Let's approach it in stages. I think phase one came in when I got offered a partnership in this park here. That was 2016. So in 2016, when we found out that the, the lease was up for sale, so we bought the lease from, uh, from the children of the original owner. Was that scary to like invest in this dream? Yeah. So I think the scariest part of it is that once we started kind of really confronting the fact that we were going to win the bid and be able to take over the property, so then I found out there's this Renaissance Fair that brings in five to 10,000 people. Someone was going to have to run the Renaissance Fair. And I was like, I think that I would be really disappointed in myself if I didn't step up and take on that event. It just seemed like a wonderful adventure. And I wanted to step up and take it on and see if I could make it successful. Jeez. Okay. Like, like was there a learning curve to that? Oh, yeah. So I definitely had to deal with my own imposter syndrome. Like, how am I going to run a Renaissance fair? You know, I've never done anything like that before. Luckily, the Renaissance Fair community itself had a lot of people that were passionate about the event. From the time we signed the lease, we had about eight months until it was we were supposed to run the Renaissance Fair. 
So I spent five of those months just, again, asking questions and talking to the Renaissance Fair people and talking to the people who were actually in management positions and helping the original owners on how they actually ran it. Because unfortunately, the, the main person who ran it had passed away. Maintaining the culture of an organization through a change in leadership is hard enough, especially when that change happens during a year-long break. Far more so when you've got something truly unique like Cronenberg. With its German Renaissance inspiration and opposition to the mainstream Los Angeles LARPing scene, Cronenberg was its own thing, something that made it even harder for David, who was still finding his footing, to create positive change and take the fair in new and more exciting directions. The fate of the fair was uncertain, and it was even uncertain all the way up into the early hours of the Cronenberg's reopening in 2017. So I was still up at four o'clock in the morning cleaning up old construction material. We hauled out about 40 tons of trash in trying to open up this park. The morning before we opened, as in we were opening in like five hours, still running around and and like cleaning up just debris that had been left over because the park had been closed for a year and we were still just cleaning it up this entire eight months. What was your months. mindset as you're running around? I'm like, I'm like we can't open like, this, how are we going to open this park with all this, like, with, like, fencing just sitting <laughs> just in the junk. middle of the road and, like, two-by-fours and four-by-fours just littered up over here and, like, actual just trash that had gotten blown in from the winds and stuff like that. Oh, that must have been frantic. I was in panic mode. I stayed up until we opened. Uh, so I was up for about 48 hours straight making sure that the park was presentable to open with. Was there an experience you had during the fair where it's like, okay, like I created something that upheld this tradition, like a, a moment with, with someone that came or a moment surveying what you had created? Do you remember anything like that? Yeah. So it's the very first weekend that we opened. Literally, I think about three hours into opening, the participants came to me and said, there are more people in here right now than we saw all of last season. What they would traditionally bring in would be 5,000 people over the entire their entire six-week run. By the end of the day, they said, yeah, you know, this is, we've had more sales in this one first day. Like I'm talking to the vendors who, who you know, sell here at the fair. We've had more sales in this one weekend than we would get all season previously. So you have the success. How does that reframe the phases of your your castle in the woods dream? So, I mean, I will admit that, you know, I thought by this time I'd be building a city out in some in in some property somewhere. So like our original timeline did have us having like two locations or something like that. But I think the way it reframed it was realizing the amount of work that it does take to build up something like this. It isn't it unfortunately isn't something that you can just sort of crowdfund on Kickstarter and then like build in six months. So right now we have, uh, you know, three vibrant LARPs running on the property, which uh, Twin Mask uh, brings in about three or 400 people a game. Uh, we have a post-apocalypse zombie LARP uh, and then a newer LARP uh, that's like a steampunk fantasy LARP. David mentioned the name Twin Mask, which you might remember from the last episode on the LARP community when we interviewed the LARP's co-founder, John Bassett. And Twin Mask is one of the several LARPs hosted by Cronenberg also one of the many LARPs postponed by the pandemic. 
But that's not to say that there hasn't been planning and activity. In fact, a lot of these events will be reopening in 2022. And over the past year, there's been online events and concerts where they featured comedians, rude and tarot card readers, a virtual escape room, and musical entertainment. Basically, it's all to say, despite the pandemic, David found his footing. Now he's focused on finally building that castle he's always dreamed about, but with a newfound perspective. So where is the community today and what are your plans for the future? I think the future starts with finding a property that I'm in love with rather than going from the direction of I have to build my castle. And so whatever property I can get a hold of is what I'm going to build it on. I think the biggest lesson I've learned from uh, like running the park here and and running the events here is that uh, the right property makes a difference. My current plan is to continue to build the activities here. And then I really want to put together a larger community of makers, people who build and make things and start from there to then launch into eventually buying a property and starting the first LARP city. And I still do have the the dream of then expanding that into multiple locations, but I think that's more on a time scale of like a decade rather than a few years. If you were to go back, what advice would you give yourself back then in starting this project, this business? I think the the biggest concept that I didn't have at the time that I have now is this concept of a minimum viable product. You know, even though I was still kind of moving in the direction of like, okay, let's get some things in progress first. I really think that I would have I would have advised myself to invest less in jumping straight to the well, let's go try to find a property and buy it and we'll just kick start it and make it happen somehow and more into the concrete, build something viable, build something on that, uh, and taking the iterative approach instead of the let's do it all now approach. I can see some ways that I was applying that, you know, at the beginning of this, I think that I was doing that on accident and my advice would be to do that on purpose. And I guess like to to end off, why do you think LARPing is important. Why do you think these kinds of communities are important? I think that LARPing combines the most beautiful aspects of human existence all into one activity. You have art, creation, you have imagination, you have dreaming of new possible worlds that don't exist, dreaming of the future, dreaming of better existences. You have the ability to experiment in some of the not so great parts of existence and learn lessons from that that you can apply into your real life. And I think it gives you a much more tangible way to experiment with interacting with people. And I think that if there's any activity that is going to help us define a new and better society, I think LARP has the tools to do that. I thought about that idea that role-playing helps us define a new, better world. LARP and really all role-playing games allow us to come together and participate in a shared dream. We play pretend, yeah, but through that play, we think through problems and solve puzzles as a community. 
Role-playing teaches us to think on our toes and roll with the punches. It's improv. It's jazz. It's rooted in learning about how to be a team player. We stage conflict and tragedy, and the catharsis born from that helps us to better navigate the real tragedies that will eventually arise in our own lives. And so I think David's right. How will we learn to make the change we want to see in the world? How do we learn to make the world a better place? If there's anything that can teach us how, it's through imagining that world and giving your decisions a test drive in the rich and magical realm of role-playing. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya. Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candazza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.